Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for your wisdom, which goes beyond the wisdom of this world and for the way that you have uh, made your people distinct in age to age and how, Lord, you continue to teach us from uh, these ancient instructions given to your people and concerning their diet. We pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit this morning that as we study your word in Leviticus, that we would understand more keenly your character and how you would have us follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we uh, dig into Leviticus 11 and all of the instructions that are given there, it made me think of uh, made me think of something else another time of a guy giving a lot of instructions. This is more just for fun. There might be a PG word in here. Them clothes got laundry numbers on them. You remember your number and always wear the ones that has your number. Any man forgets his number, spends the night in the box. These here spoons you keep with you. Any man loses his spoon, spends the night in the box. No playing grab ass or fighting the dude. You got a grudge against another man, you fight on Saturday afternoon. Any man playing grab ass or fighting the dude and spends the night in the box. First bell is five minutes or late. You're going to get in your box. Last bell is at eight. Any man not in his bunk at eight, spends the night in the box. There's no smoking in the prone position in bed. To smoke, you must have both legs over the side of your bunk. Any man caught smoking in the prone position in bed spends the night in the box. You get two sheets every Saturday. You put the clean sheet in the top, the top sheet in the bottom, the bottom sheet you turn in the laundry board. Any man who turns in the wrong sheet spends a night in the box. Which no one will sit in the bunks with dirty pants on. Any man with dirty pants on sitting on the bunk spends a night in the box. Any man don't bring back his empty pop bottle spends a night in the box. Any man loud talking spends a night in the box. You got questions, you come to me. I'm Carl, the floor walker. I'm responsible for ordering here. Any man don't keep order spends a night in the box. All right. <laughs> Name that movie? Go ahead, Luke. Go ahead, Luke. Yeah. Never exactly. saw it. Never saw it. Oh, that's an all timer. Uh, my goal for today is for us to read Leviticus 11 and for it not to sound to you like the guy in the movie. Because I think um, with this chapter in particular, but really throughout uh, the book of Leviticus, it can sound as though it's just like, you know, God saying, anybody eat something to have the split hoof, you spend a night in a box. And that's not what's going on here. There's a lot more to it. Um, so let's get into Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. And if anybody needs a Bible, you can grab one over here. And... Uh, as we do, actually, I want to say one more word of introduction to these chapters because uh, and this is number one on your, on your handout. Chapters 11 through 15, we're moving into a new section now. You remember um, a couple of weeks ago, last time we met for this Bible study, we looked at the sad plight of Nadab and Abihu and those first priests, and they go up, opening day, and they get struck down for offering their unauthorized strange fire. Chapters 11 through 15 are what are called the Manual of Purity, and they might be understood as a response to what happens to Nadab and Abihu. In other words, this is, uh, they, they came before the Lord in an impure sort of way, and now God, over the next five chapters, is going to lay out, here's how, what you need to do so that this doesn't happen to you too. Um, the summary of this section is in Leviticus 15, verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Okay? 
So that's just kind of the big picture rationale for not only chapter 11, but the next several chapters. God wants to continue to show his people, here's how you live in my holiness, are separate from uncleanness, lest you die. It's right vividly before them as they saw Nadab and Abihu get struck down and taken away. They're like, okay, yeah, we don't want to go like that, so God, tell us what we need to hear. So that's just, I think, some helpful kind of backdrop for this. Let's dig in. I want to read the first half of this chapter all at once, and then we're going to walk back through it. So verses 1 through 23. Follow along with me, please. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, yep. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but doesn't part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but doesn't chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They're unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, I don't know what a hoopoe is, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. And John the Baptist says, great, I've got dinner. Um, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. All right. Where do we begin, right? First of all, just look at the, the kind of the structure of it here. So in the first um, eight verses or so, what kind of animals are focused upon? You've got the animals that are on the earth, on, on land. Okay? Then verses 9 through 12, you've got animals in the waters. Verses 13 through 19, animals in the skies. And then uh, verses 20 through 23, you have insects, winged insects. All right? So there's all these questions. You read these, read this, and you're like, well, what is the deal? Why is it this animal is unclean, this one isn't? Well, first I want to make this point that no creature is inherently unclean. And this is, this is a key point that I think can get missed in here. It's not that any particular creature is unclean in itself. This critter is bad, this critter is worse. God made all of them. You know, he loves all of his little creatures, the creepy crawling things and the flying things and everything. The key point to notice with, with this, and it's repeated over and over again, but just look at verse four, for instance. It talks about the camel, it chews the cud, but it doesn't part the hoof. It is unclean to you, or it is unclean for you, could otherwise be translated. 
so also in verse 5, and over and over again throughout this section, it speaks of some animals as being unclean, but not in themselves. They are unclean for you. But that then raises the more fundamental question. Okay, so why are these animals unclean for us and other ones are not? What is it that makes one better than the other? So let's talk about this. What, what makes, why are these critters? I don't, is that the, a rock badger? I forget what, which animal that is. <laughs> it's scary looking, whatever it is. What have you heard, or what have been, if, if, in as much as you've thought about this, perhaps you're like, Pastor, I've literally never thought about this until right now. But if you've thought about it, heard about it, read about it, what are some of the reasons that you know of that may be given for why God chooses, says these animals are unclean for you and these ones aren't? Well, it could be disease. Okay, it could be disease. Well, some of them are indiscriminate uh, garbage uh, collectors, yeah. indiscriminate eaters. Okay, some of them are indiscriminate eaters, and especially among the birds. Um, you've got birds that are, are you know, the ones that you see coming to get the roadkill. Good. Other reasons? Other things that you've thought about or, or heard or read? Yeah, Court. I don't know whether it's a reason, but I mentioned this to you, that carnivores don't seem to be okay. on the list of clean. Right. Uh, so Court says that carnivores don't seem to be on the list of the, of the clean animals. Okay. And there's some... Except for the fish. What's that? Except for, Except for the fish. Exactly. Um, other things that you've thought of or heard of before? I mean, there's lots of different reasons that are given. So, um, well, I'm just going to say, spoiler alert, we don't know for sure. We just don't. The Bible doesn't say it explicitly, Old Testament or New Testament, okay? Um, so we just don't know. And anybody who says this for sure is the reason it could be, but we just, we're not able to say with full conviction, okay? But... That doesn't stop us from giving different suggestions. And I think that there's um, some uh, element of, of truth to each of these. So first answer um, that is given at times is morality. So um, that the animals that were unclean for the Israelites were ones that the surrounding nations would use in some of their pagan sacrifices or in ways that uh, would have been untoward for the people of God then to, to use and to uh, adopt. So it has almost kind of a, a witness um, angle to it, slant to it. And with some of the animals, uh, we know this to, to be the case from you know, um, ancient history, but with a lot of them, we don't know. And so this, this one tends to be, again, more conjecture. It fits with other things that we learn in Leviticus, um, in particular with why aren't they eating, eating the fat, eating the blood. We talked about that early, in earlier chapters. Um, but that's, just, that's one response that's given. A second one, uh, which maybe goes along with a couple of things that have been mentioned, is hygiene. Um, that these are, that, uh, this is a, kind of God's diet for the Israelites. And it's a better diet for them. It makes them healthier, fitter, more productive. And once again, there's some, some truth to this. Or people will say, you know, God was kind of looking out for them um, because, you know, couldn't trust them to eat pork without getting themselves sick or something like this. And uh, again, I think that there's elements of, of truth to this as well, although it's not always clear that these are the best creatures to eat. And I think any time you see something like, here's God's diet, basically just reproducing like the Leviticus diet, I think that always is going to go too far, for, especially for New Testament reasons that we're going to see unpacked, right? 
So the third reason that's given, the one that I find most appealing, just probably my own uh, predilections, but is there's a theological sort of rationale for the creatures. Okay? Now this was the favorite answer that was given, especially among the early church, the early Christians. When they would go back through Leviticus and develop just a, a rationale, a basis for why is it that God is saying you, these are unclean for you and these are not. It was kind of their, their default posture to say it all goes back to theology and to uh, an understanding of the gospel. And in the early church in particular, they would often read um, not just the Old Testament, but especially the Old Testament. They would read it in a way that they would call figural, okay, with these different senses. What do I mean by figural? They would say that there is the, um, there's the letter of the text um, where it's just, you know, what does it mean by a split hoof? What kind of creature is it talking about? What does it mean by an animal that, that chews the cud? Just understanding it at the level of the text, the letter. But then they would say, you also need to understand the figure or the, the theological symbolism that goes along with it. And in the early church in particular, they would say, and that is just as much a part of the meaning as the letter is. That these go hand in hand. Now, as you could probably guess, that can go way off the deep end at times because it can just get very fanciful, right? When people are like, oh, well, this symbolizes that and there's really no guardrails on it other than the fact that they would always be trying to point back to Christ and to the gospel, okay? They would always be trying to point back to Christ and to the gospel. So in the spirit of some holy conjecture, let me share with you some of the different interpretations and texts that would be pointed to to try and explicate and explain, okay, why is it these creatures are okay and why are not? You up for that? Okay. I think you'll find some of them rather ingenious, actually. But Okay, the parted hoof. The parted hoof, they would say, okay, this is symbolic of the two ways. Okay, so for instance, Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Therefore, choose life. And Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So why does God say the animals with the parted hoof? Because that's pointing to the fact that life is kind of divided in these two ways. The way, of, Becky, you're looking at me like, this is, no, there's no way. The way of life and the way, you don't see that? It's written in very small letters. <laughs> Again, I think that there's definitely some uh, spiritual playfulness. The next one, I think, though, has a little bit more legitimacy. I really like this a lot. Okay. Choose the cut. Okay, choose the cut. As you can see. So uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. More or less in a second. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, you have an important Hebrew word that comes along with this, and that Hebrew word is hagah. Let me hear you say hagah. Now, hagah literally means, it's a word that's used to describe um, the way the lion or that um, cows are chewing the cud. When they are, as they are kind of ruminating upon their food, they are hagahing. And it's also used of lions, the sound that lions make after they have you know, brought down their gazelle or something, and they're kind of purring over their prey. They hagah. 
And so in the scriptures, in Psalm 1 and elsewhere, when it talks about scripture being on your heart, it will use this word haga to describe that practice of meditation. That to meditate on God's word is to be like a cow chewing the cud. Okay? So these would be good animals. These would be clean for you because they are good examples of how you also ought to ruminate on God's word. All right. Is that, does that seem more persuasive to you? No, still not. <laughs> but I do think that this is a, a cool word picture, a way to think about, you know, when you meditate, sometimes I think, you know, and I, I, I'll go back and forth. Sometimes I'll do like a Bible in a year sort of thing. And I think there's really va- real value for just reading big chunks of scripture at, at a time. Um, but I think there's also real value in, I'm just going to read small sections a day, you know, and treating the Bible more like, you know, a lozenge and reading it like you're, like you're sucking out a lozenge versus something that you're just throwing back. Or maybe would say a, a glass of fine wine versus, you know, a cup of PBR, something like that, right? Um, where you're like, okay, I really want to appreciate this. And there's room for both, right? Let a thousand drinks boom. Um, so anyway, this, I think it's a, it's a helpful way to think about scripture. Next one, fins. What's the deal with fins? Again, this is, this is interesting stuff here. Exodus 25. The word that's translated as fins here is used elsewhere for wings. Okay? Fins are fish wings. Okay? Exodus 25, said, using the same word as in Leviticus, says the cherubim shall spread out their fins, their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. For the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And Psalm 17. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Okay? So these creatures that have the fins, or the fish wings, if you will, are uh, bringing to mind the, um, especially the Ark of the Covenant, and that cherubim with their wings that, as they were standing over the Ark of the Covenant, that being the place of mercy and forgiveness. All right, I can tell I'm testing your guys' patience with these. So let me just... <laughs> I'll go, go through the other ones here. So scales. What about for scales? So in number 16, as for the censors of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering or scales for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. Switching to the New Testament, you've got um, Paul or Saul when he... Um, then regains his sight, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. All right, last one then. Not a scavenging carnivore. This was kind of mentioned among, among the birds. Because what does God send forth in Genesis 8? He sends forth a dove to see if the waters have subsided from the ground. And again, Matthew 10, be innocent as doves. Doves were one of the clean birds that could be eaten, along with pigeons and, and others. All right. Is any of this remotely persuasive for you? I think that when taken in the, in the proper spirit, not as like this is the definitive original meaning, why God said the ones that are parting the hoof, but from a, an attitude instead of, okay, within the scriptural text, it's always ultimately pointing us back to the deeper truths of, of Christ and who he is for us. I think that you can take that and 
and say, okay, that's interesting. And you know, <laughs> if it's edifying for you, so much the better. But like on a devotional level, but not as like, I mean, this is way too much detail to be like, that's what you're trying to get across. Right, like, right, right. Is the only reason to put this down is so you have a like a devotional reference. Right. Like two thousand years later, that seems a bit a bit a bit weird. You know what I mean? Right. No. Right. right. So, like uh, Chip says, so at a at a devotional kind of level, this can be helpful. Now, and it's easy for us to say too, because if you were like in the you know the, the nitty gritty of every day, just figuring out which of these critters you can eat, and you you ask your priest. Wait, why can we not have the rock badger? Um, and uh, well, because you know it's symbolic of the the two ways. Would be like, all right, seriously. Um, I can imagine that would be kind of exasperating. But uh, other thoughts or reflections on this so far? Yeah, Matt. When I read this passage again, it reminds me of the parental answer we quite often give. Yeah. Because I said so. Because I said so. Yes. And this is proof text for because I said. So. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Well, okay, so this is, I did not have a, a good way to put this, but I think Matt has actually hit the nail on the head. So, because you've got morality, you've got hygiene, you've got theology, and then there's answer four, which is question mark, question mark, question mark. But that God says, because I, say, because I said so, um, because he knows that in the fullness of time, he has something more for them. I would say, stepping back, thinking about <clears throat> big picture on God's intentions for the Israelites, his desire is to make them distinct, okay? He wants to, to set them apart as a people apart. Did it matter which animals they were eating or, or not eating? You know, we can, we can talk all about these different reasons. I think to a certain extent, yes, but ultimately, not really, because God's larger goal is, how can I, how can I set you apart? That he wants to, for them to be different from their surrounding nations, the surrounding peoples. Um, if there were too much objective reality and reason for which animals he says are clean and which are unclean, then he wouldn't be able to make the move that he does make in the New Testament, which is how Jesus in the New Testament then supersedes the food laws. See, If it was so much the case that like, look, you cannot eat pigs world without end, amen, and because, you know, and here's all the uh, then how would God be able to make this move that he does make in the New Testament that now they're going to have a very radically different viewpoint on what they can and can't eat, what they do and don't eat. Many of you are probably familiar with this passage, but some of you are, are probably not. So let's go to Acts chapter 10, which is really this powerful moment where, for Peter, the scales fall from his eyes, as it so, were. So did the... Did were they as clueless as we are as to why these were handed down? Like, were they like, oh, this this makes sense because no one eats the pig or rabbits? Good lord, no one eats a rabbit. Like, yeah, right. Or, or was this like, oh man, we've been eating rabbit and pig right. for years. Right, right. And now we now it's off the menu. Like, well, so the key, I think the the first thing to say is they are not. I mean, as modern people, we eat meat probably every day. Like, if you're not a vegetarian, you probably eat some sort of meat. Every day. Um, that was certainly not the case for them. Right. Like, they're having meat on rare occasions. Um, and so in that respect, it wasn't necessarily uh, a whole lot more onerous or difficult. Right. Um, it's probably the case that uh, it wasn't totally out of left field. In other words, that there were um, some of these animals, you know, 
when you talk about their distinctiveness from the other um, nations around them that also didn't eat some of these things, but there's other things that they did. In particular, the birds, um, and for the same reason we've talked about before, the birds that are eating the, the flesh of the carcasses and the carrion, those would often be eaten. And this is one that, um, for the Israelites to hear, oh, we're not supposed to eat these, that probably would have been coming a little bit of a surprise, although making sense in the context of these other teachings. So but these were things that were already on the, they were already doing them, and God, like, makes it, like, codifies it, really. These are really kind of out of... Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I don't believe there was anything um, that resembled this among other religions or other cultures where they would have been like, yeah, okay, this is, like you said, this is, he's just putting down what we already do. I think that there's uh, an element of this that would have been uh, a, a radical change in, in some of their practices. And so this is the first time, like... Pigs are off the list. I, yeah, well, that that one in particular, I don't know about. I really it's funny, like, like yeah. I didn't know like rabbits weren't, but no one seems to care about rabbits. They're like, right? But that pig. Yes, I, I know. mean, come on, guy. I know. Yes, right. that seems rude. Seems <laughs> 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 excessive. When you read Daniel, it sounds like they were on yeah. a complete vegetarian diet. Yeah, exactly. So you know, Dan Daniel is. Uh, it's not a big deal for Daniel not to eat. Uh, meat. He's, I mean, he's, he's basically on a vegetarian diet. I have seen those cookbooks too, you know, at the Christian bookstore, yeah. like the, the Daniel diet and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you'll probably lose weight, but I don't know how delicious of a diet would be. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about Noah and uh, taking the and Yeah, so uh, Genesis chapter 9, right? Let's go there. Good question. So Sandy asks about Noah. So go to Genesis chapter 9. All right. Um, so I'm trying to look. Is it, it's that first section, I think, in particular. Um, Verse 3 is where he says. Yes. So, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Okay? And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Okay, so what's interesting about this is that uh, this is... Con what about 7 uh, verse 8? Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean. Oh, okay, good. Okay, so chapter, this chapter 7, verse 8. Um, so of, this is still talking about... Um, yeah. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon them. So, uh, yeah, I... Yeah. Noah takes seven pairs 
of the clean animals. Oh, right. Yeah. And fewer of the unclean animals. And that's even before they were eating animals yeah. anyway. There was still this clean and unclean. There animal. was already that distinction. So, okay, that's helpful. So, I mean, it, that would seem to suggest that already, um, I mean, God is going to, kind of more along the lines of what Chip was saying, God is going to make it really flesh out, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> the clean and the unclean animals, but that there's already a sense of the, the categories. Now, the other way to look at that would be, well, as Moses is writing this later and knows, he's looking back retrospectively and saying the clean and the unclean, they were all kind of in there. But, ah, no, that's, I thank you for bringing that up. That's an interesting reflection. Yeah, Hans. And if God thought that the unclean animals were just terrible, that there shouldn't be anywhere around them, he could have just left them off the ark. He could have just left them off the ark, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, but he, he, he doesn't do that. Yeah, like the unicorns. They must have been really bad. Or whatever. <sighs> Don't get my daughter started. Um. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you guys this part because uh, from hopefully you've, I had a chance to read the, my inklings from my exploits with pig slaughter. I just want you guys to know how invested I am in this Bible study. Like I, like I need to do some field work and get out there. But we were worried about um, the kids, you know, how are they? Yeah. So we didn't have them there during the, the slaughter, but brought them later after the animals had been slaughtered and before we did the butchering. And I was like trying to protect Ellie from it, but she comes up and as we're, as we're uh, bringing her in, she says, I want to see the head. <laughs> Wait, there's more. She said, I want to see the head and the heart and the blood. Wow. It was like... All right, so now we've got other things to be concerned about. <laughs> but for her, I, I mean, I think all kids would be different. But for her, she was just like fascinated by the, the reality of it. So, she's going to be in medicine. She's going to be in medicine. Oh, gosh. I want to see the heart. That's the father's There you go. Good. All right. Where were we? Okay, so. Oh, all right. This is a great quote um, I heard from a guy named Daniel Emery Price. He says, in the Old Testament, God distinguishes his people by what they don't take and eat. In the New Testament, he distinguishes them by what they do take and eat. Um, so, I mean, in, there's, in Leviticus, it's don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. This is what, what you shouldn't have. But in the New Testament, it's this is what marks you up. This is what identifies you. Take and eat. I should say, too, in the Genesis reading, is a good reminder of this. What does all of this kind of echo in its own way? Going back even further still behind Noah. All the way back to the garden, right? Take each. Yeah. Said the serpent. Yes. The, the uh, initial instructions of God involve what you should and shouldn't eat. Um, and so this is very much in keeping with, with God's character and how he is trying to, to guide them. I mean, so fascinating how food is, you can just run this through line from Eden all the way down to uh, um, end of time. Yeah. Your word was found and I ate it. Yeah, your word was found and I ate it. Ezekiel, yeah. right? Yeah. Eating, eating God's word and it was as sweet as honey to my mouth. So all, all the way through. Oh, I think we turned to Acts, but I got distracted there. Sorry, go, go back, go to, back Acts. to Acts. Go back to Acts. My bad. All right. So this, this is kind of the, the key moment and epiphany for... For Peter, and then it has huge ramifications for the mission. That's a kind of a couple chapter story, but just going to give 
one piece of it here. So there was this guy named Cornelius who was not a Jew. He was what was known as a God-fearer, which means he was a, a Gentile who believed in the God of Israel, okay? But did not practice all of the, the laws of the Israelites and everything. And Peter, meanwhile, has this vision. So let's start with verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the, the housetop, quick, 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 about uh, the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. When God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. It's happened three times to Peter. That happens a lot. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay. So Peter is understandably perplexed by this. But God is saying, look, I have made this clean by my word. Well, you know, uh, because I said so, right? Um, so do not call it common now. This is set apart. Uh, that now I've made all things clean. And of course, that's also symbolic of the mission and the extension of the mission of God. That it's now no longer just these particular people, the Israelites, but it extends to all nations so that a Gentile like Cornelius is also folded into the people of God. So it's hard to overstate the importance of this moment for the early Christian mission. As it, as it goes out, and God's saying, look, now all things are clean for you. Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, as we said, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. In Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So now this, those were shadows and foreshadowings, anticipations, but now that Christ has come, he's able to open up the, the fullness of his, his truth. Uh, I'm just curious, do you think, for you guys, could you have made this change that Peter suddenly does? What would have, what would have been the, the challenges for you as you know, you're now told by the Lord, oh, all things are now clean. You think you could have made this, this change, or what would that have have been like in your life? Or have you made, tried to make changes like this in, in your own life? Guilt. Okay, guilt. Just uh, doesn't feel quite right at first, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> what, am I, what am I getting into eating these pigs? We have, we have like 1,500 years, right? Right. Of doing it one way. And it's not like God wasn't really specific before. I mean, like, right. yeah. this is not like, yeah, yeah. go for it. No big, yeah, no big deal. Like, yeah. yeah. This, and along these lines, too, I mean, the Sabbath. That, that the Sabbath day is going to change too. Like that was entrenched for thousands of years. Yeah, Bill. Also, I, I kind of gather from the travels of Jesus and his interaction with the established church or the faith, that there must have been a lot of discontent with how things were going. Right. I mean, this whole thing of the, the, the uh, selling the, in the church, uh, selling the uh, uh, offerings, and Jesus kicking over the tables. I mean, there must have been a, 
a pretty widespread distrust and discontent with the established Jewish religion. Therefore, they were probably somewhat ready for somebody to say, that was well and good, but it's not the right way. Yeah, uh, it's, it's an interesting comment. So Bill's saying is basically, perhaps it was a, a matter that um, people had, had kind of reached a tipping point with the whole sacrificial system and as well as the dietary things and so forth. And um, there might be some, some of that, um, but even still, they, uh, there's a lot of pushback when this changes. I mean, even among the Christian, the Jewish Christians, there's a lot of pushback sure. that, uh, on that. But uh, that's an interesting thought. Yes, Cindy? Mm, that pretty much describes my uh, spiritual life coming from Seventh-day Adventist into Christianity. Okay. And, Can you share a little bit about well, that? I just know that uh, a lot of those uh, Levitical rules and the dietary things, they are a setup for uh, entrenched eating disorders. I mean, there was actually, the first time that I had ham or bacon, I felt nauseous. Yeah, right. It wasn't a pleasant thing. Right. And, you know, there were, I don't know. Well, so, I mean, this is, it's almost like you're, you're a case in point of just what we're talking about, where well, it's like. Yeah, and, and the, the it, it is so deeply entrenched that even, yeah. It, re it really requires a complete uh, surrender to the Lord. Yeah. I mean, almost. I mean, it has to almost be a supernatural kind of change. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I always kind of thought it was interesting that that vision comes to Peter. Yeah. Even though it's Paul who kind of mm -hmm. takes on the Gentile mission yep. going forward, yeah. and I wonder if that was a way of strengthening, you know, that message. Yes. That it, it, yeah, I think carried out initially through Peter. Yep, I think that's absolutely the case. Well, and Peter was the one who was so uh, reluctant to, right. you know, he wanted them to be, he divided himself, yep. he wanted them to be circumcised. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, he had a spirit of, of uh, legalism. Uh, yeah, I think he did have a, a spirit of legalism, but also <laughs> he was... I mean, you could say he was a good Lutheran in some ways, right? He was like, he's like, this is how we've always done it, right? <laughs> you want to see what at the potluck? Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, but I'm sympathetic to Peter in this because it was such a radical change. But to Matt's point, it does underscore the supernatural providence of, of the gospel. I mean, this is one of these things, too, guys, that is sort of a, a sneaky, good um, apologetic uh, in other words, de defense of the faith. You don't, wouldn't normally think of this as like a defense of the faith, but what, I, what do I mean by that? Just what you were saying, like for 2,000 years, Jewish people would not change their diet for anything. I mean, this was so deeply ingrained. And yet we're able to establish historically, culturally, that suddenly there's a, a huge, uh, a larger um, demand for pigs, right? <laughs> and, for, and for pork. Like what, what was changing um, what, what was it that caused this change in people's diets? I mean, just something as basic and fundamental as the diets, you have to account for that. So do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? So just as a historical and as a cultural fact that you can, can be demonstrated objectively, something radical happened that now people, Jewish people's diets really changed sometime around you know, 30 AD. Exactly, right. Did the yeah. sacrificial system end here at the same time? Well, I mean, it's all kind of 
happening at uh, all together, right? So um, the sacrificial system, as far as we know, continues for about another 30 years mm -hmm. um, until the destruction of the temple. So it, I mean, among among the Christians, I think it it's it's over like that because they're proclaiming Jesus as the once for all sacrifice that He is the one who has put in it. No more sacrifices are are needed. But they're still going to the temple. They're still worshiping at the at the temple, and so there's an interesting kind of dynamic there. They still identify themselves as as Jews. Like they don't think suddenly they don't wake up and say we're Christians, um, but they recognize now this is where. Our Jewish scriptures were leading us to all along. Right. Yeah, that's a huge amount of change. Then. I, yeah, what you eat is changing. How you worship changes. How you justify yourself changes. Like all the things. Like I mean, if we change our church services by half an hour, right? <laughs> Pitchforks. So I'm just saying. Yeah. There's supernatural going on. Like, I mean, I, I agree with Billy. Probably two people are fed up with it, but right. a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are. Right. All right. And even if they are fed up with it, they might not. That doesn't necessarily mean they'd be willing to overturn everything. All right, let's go back to uh, Leviticus 11. I got a few more comments on um, the food's almost ready. Just talk about, talk about food. Yes. We've got a lot of yeah. animals that we're going to eat. Right. Lots of fish. Right. So God lays out those animals, and then in verse 24, to uh, Verse 29, I guess. Well, anyway. Um, by, by all these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but isn't cloven-footed or doesn't chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They're unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they're dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which uh, any of them falls when they're dead shall be unclean. Whether it's an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that's used for any purpose must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. All right, I'm going to just stop there. It continues in this vein. Um, but in this section, God is making clear that anything that touches what becomes unclean? Death. Okay. So this is a, a big part of it too, is that God is saying, avoid death like the plague. <laughs> that um, the death, and, and some people suggest that this might be part of why some of the animals are unclean for them as well. Because um, when it comes to animals down in the water, they're viewed circumspectly because the seas in particular were viewed as the abyss and reminders of death. So also the critters that are um, burrowing down into the ground, underground, where um, figuratively speaking, it's like um, drilling down into death. Be that as it may, there is this repeated thing, not just in Leviticus 11, but really throughout Leviticus, that death um, is viewed, and I would say is, is suggested by all these teachings as an evil thing. Death is not viewed as a good, but as something that is a corruption of God's original plan. And that's reinforced in countless ways throughout Leviticus. Um, 
won't go there now, but this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is the last enemy. And I talk about this a lot, and especially in, in funeral sermons and so forth. Yes, death can come as a mercy in people's lives. I absolutely believe that. And yes, as believers, when we die, that it's something that we know we are immediately at peace and at rest in the presence of the Lord. And we can give thanks to God for those whom we have loved and lost and knowing that they are with him. All those things are 100% true. But it's also the case that death is not just a part of life, as it's said sometimes. Death is a, a, not the way that things are originally supposed to be. And when the coming judge comes and he writes all the wrongs, there will not continue to be death. But death will be swallowed up in victory, and he will be the Lord of life forevermore. See? God is constantly instilling uh, that attitude in his people through things like these food laws and elsewhere, or I think if we have eyes to see, we see, yeah, death was never meant to be, was, never meant, was, was not part of God's original good design in his creation. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. Just some final, final thoughts. I do smell grilled cheese getting ready. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I want to I go ahead to uh, the last few verses of chapter 11 because these are really significant. God says, verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord, your, the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law, or the teaching, about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, their identity is what motivates their obedience. This is who you are because you belong to me. I am the Lord who is holy. Therefore, you shall live holy and separate and distinct. Okay, Consecrate yourself because this is your identity as the people of God. That's always the case. Identity precedes that obedience. You know, Romans 12, a verse we've often turned to in this study. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because of the mercies of God, because of having already been claimed by God and redeemed by him and brought out of slavery, whether it be from Egypt or the spiritual slavery to sin and death and the devil, now you have this new identity, and so you are going to live differently. Uh, I think that changes how, how we live and the way that we regard our Christian life. It's not just do this, don't do that, but instead, this is who you are, and therefore, you live differently. And then, um, just uh, once again, you have God saying his desire there, verse 47, is to make that distinction. And this is what he was ultimately about. He's making that distinction so that his people would be distinct in the world, but now we are made distinct not by what we don't eat, but by what we do eat. All right, any last thoughts on Leviticus 11? There's a lot here. We could not think to, uh, to get into all of it. Oh, I think I did have had one more point on your handout, didn't I? Um, for you table uh, blank filler outers. But I think it, it shows how the God's teaching on unclean foods unites the Lord's table and the family table. 
And uh, I'll leave you with this. This is a point brought home by uh, John Kleinig, the author of uh, the Levitic main Leviticus commentary I'm using. It says, both the sanctuary of the Lord and the Israelite home, the Lord's table and the family table, were threatened by the life-diminishing, life-destroying power of impurity that emanated from the underworld, the demonic realm of chaos and death. Because the holiness of the temple was connected with the purity of the home, both were damaged by all that was unclean and unacceptable in God's eyes. Conversely, God desired to extend his holiness through his people further in the common realm by purifying it and sanctifying it. God's ultimate aim is to sanctify all things and so that his holiness would move out from the tabernacle on the temple out into the homes of his people. And I think Leviticus 11 and the food laws is proof positive of how God desires their identity to suffuse their everyday lives. So this, this is everything from the most basic, elemental, mundane stuff that makes them who they are. That's who they are as the people of God. Right. Any last thoughts or questions, comments? Well, then let's go eat some meat. And no, actually, I don't think we have. But uh, thank you guys for being with us. We'll continue next week. <laughs>